do ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. I pray that uh, we would be attentive, and Lord, we thank you that the kids are um, just doing some special projects, and, and uh, Lord, just um, learning of you and being blessed today and uh, tonight as they uh, are in their classes. And then, Lord, the youth, I pray that you just be with Marcy as she's teaching them. Um, your word and uh, Lord that they would just draw closer to you and that's our desire here tonight that right now that we would give our attention to you in the teaching of the word as it goes forth I pray that um, we would make application in a way that touches us and grows us and and helps us to see you better in your faithfulness and to know you more and to fall in love with you and so that's why we're here Lord so again we just open our hearts and ears to you And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. And so as we saw last week in chapter 4, to kind of lead up to where we're at in chapter 6, we saw that the children of Israel, they were doing battle with the Philistines, and what they did is they brought out the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it out to do battle with the Philistines, and of course, as we saw, there was disastrous results that happened. The children of Israel are not right with God, their hearts have been turned to idols. And really, when they brought out the Ark of the Covenant, they were really putting their faith and trust in that golden box that was in the Holy of Holies there in Shiloh in the tabernacle. And of course, you know that the Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies as the tabernacle was there in Shiloh. And and we know that as um, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it, and the mercy seat was made of pure gold, had two cherubim. And when Moses was uh, told by God there on Mount Sinai to make the Ark of the Covenant, you recall that it was God that told Moses that, Moses, you construct the tabernacle. It wasn't that Moses came to God and said, you know what, I think it's a good idea that we build a tabernacle and we build this ark and you dwell between the cherubim and we do these sacrifices. The Lord initiated and the Lord said that, Moses, you build the tabernacle according to the pattern that I show you. We know that from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And so as they made that furnishing, it was to be placed in that inner sanctuary. And only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. There, as you know, according to Leviticus chapter 16, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat that was between the cherubim. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to meet with you, that is, with my people. And it was to represent the, where the, the, between the cherubim where God dwelt, the Shekinah glory of God. It represented the tangible presence of God. Now, we do know when Solomon would dedicate the temple that, that we will see later on in the Old Testament, that as he dedicated the temple and the Ark of the Covenant would be brought into the Holy of Holies there, that permanent structure there in Jerusalem, that Solomon, he would give that prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, he acknowledged that, Lord, we know that a temple cannot contain you, that, that you created the universe and, and that the universe is in the palm of your hand and, and no space can contain you. But it was where the Lord uh, would meet with his people on that day particularly. It was, it was where the glory of God was in their midst. And we know that in their wilderness wandering, that the tabernacle sat in the middle of the camp. And of course, according to the book of Numbers, they were to camp around the tabernacle in a specific order, the different tribes. And so there was a nation 
that had the tangible presence of God in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that would hover over the tabernacle. And it was to show the other nations that God was with them. And when they came into the promised land, no longer were they in that camp. Of course, they would receive their inheritance and their allotments, and they were spread out, the different tribes. And so the tabernacle would then be set up, according to Joshua chapter 18, there in Shiloh, and Shiloh's kind of in the middle of the country. So once again, you know, God was in their midst and, and in, you know, um, the center of where they dwelt, in the wilderness, and when they took the land. And you see, it's an important picture to you and to me that God desires for, for him to be the center of our lives, to be the priority of our lives in every area of our lives. But what had happened is they entered into the days of the judges. Of course, as we have discussed, they were in rebellion against God. And so they said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. We will get it, and it will deliver us from the Philistines. And they were putting their trust in the box, not in God. They were putting their trust in that furnishing that, that was placed in the tabernacle, and really it became an idol to them. And so instead of really turning to the Lord with their hearts and having devotion towards God, because that's what God wanted. He wanted their hearts. He wanted them to walk in his ways and have a love for him. But they had turned to other things and were walking in the ways that were contrary to what God had told him them to do, and they had turned their hearts towards idols. And so they were defeated. And so the Ark of the Covenant, as we saw in chapter 4, was captured. There was a, a great defeat of the children of Israel. 30,000 were killed. And also we know that Eli, who was the high priest and the judge at that time, that he was um, one that suffered the loss of his two sons. They were priests ministering at the tabernacle. And so Hopni and Phinehas were killed um, there in the battle as well as against the Philistines. And so as the news would come back to Shiloh and to Eli that Israel has been defeated and withdrawn from the battle, and, and many have died in the battle, and Hopni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, we saw that Eli, there at the end of chapter 4, 98 years old, that he would fall over, uh, probably had a, a heart attack hearing the news, and the scripture says in chapter 4, specifically when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured, he fell over backwards, and he broke his neck, and he died, and then we, of course, we saw that Phineas, his wife, went into labor and had a son and, and called him Ichabob. The glory has departed. But here's the thing. The glory had departed a long time ago because they had been rebelling against the Lord. And, and, and they had said, we don't want to worship and turn towards you, Lord, and really trust and have devotion towards you. But they put it towards other things. So the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. It was a very dark time, a very dark day, one of the darkest days in all of their history. And so as we saw in chapter 5, the Ark of the Covenant would be taken by the Philistines, and the Philistines occupied that area and had their strongholds there along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just west of where Jerusalem would be today. And they took it to Ashdod, one of their major cities, and put the Ark of the Covenant in their pagan temple, the temple dedicated to Dagon, which was a god that was the fish god. And so uh, the Philistines came in the next morning after they put the Ark of the Covenant in, and Dagon had been fallen over, as you recall, as we read, and his head was broken off and his hands broken off. And, and so the Philistines knew something was 
fishy, something was up, and uh, something going on. And, and so pretty soon what happened is the men of the city began to be struck with tumors, and a plague began to spread throughout Ashdod. So what they did is they took the Ark of the Covenant and took it to the next major city. Now the Philistines at this time have five major cities that we're going to read about. So they took it from Ashdod to the next major city, to Gath, and there those people were struck with tumors. And it was probably a plague that would go through. And, and what we're going to see is they're going to offer a trespass offering with tumors and with rats. So it could have been a buponic plague that, of course, is transferred by rats that was spreading throughout the land. But they would go from city to city, taking the Ark of the Covenant, and devastation and defeat, and death was taking place as it did. So in chapter 6, as we pick it up now, now the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hands is not removed from you. So they decide and realize we've got to get rid of the ark of the covenant because of this plague that's spreading throughout our territory in all these cities. So they kept the ark for seven months, a total of seven months. And, and you look at that and you read that and you think, why would they keep the Ark of the Covenant for that length of time, for seven months, while, you know, death and, and this plague is going through their cities? They were um, devastated. And, and verse 11 of chapter 5 says there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and, and the territory where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was going in. But for seven months they held on to it. And when you look at that and think about that, it doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. When there are those who are in rebellion against God, that they make foolish decisions and, and they think in a foolish kind of way. And that's what was happening with the Philistines. They probably thought, we got this great trophy of the children of Israel and we're going to hang on to it and we're not going to let it go. Even though we're experiencing a plague, even though we're experiencing destruction, we're going to hang on to this thing. And what can happen to people is, is that when they're in rebellion against God, when they're not walking in the ways of the Lord, they can hang on to things that bring, you know, discouragement and destruction into their lives. That it's just the consequences that they're experiencing is terrible and bad and they're defeated. But yet they will hang on to that thing because they're thinking foolishly and making foolish decisions. And that's what's such a blessing about being a Christian. You see, we get to walk in the wisdom and the ways of the Lord. And we can know true wisdom, godly wisdom, as we study His Word and then apply it into our lives. And what I pray is that none of us, that we would harden our hearts to the point to where we are not listening to the Lord or desiring to walk in the ways of the Lord. And it wasn't just the Philistines that were making foolish decisions and experiencing the consequences of it, but the children of Israel as well. They have been in this time period of the days of the judges for 400 years now. And so for generation to generation to generation, they've been in a state of rebellion, and we have seen the consequences that they have experienced because of their rebellion against the Lord. 
It was a very dark time. And what we're going to see now is there's going to be a transition as we move into chapter 7. The children of Israel are going to begin to repent, and revival is going to break out, and they're going to give up those idols, and they're going to turn to the Lord, and the Lord's going to give them victory. And as you and I turn our hearts to the Lord and surrender completely to Him, and we give up the pleasures and the idols of the world, we're going to experience great victory in our lives, spiritual victory, as the Lord works for us. So here are the Philistines. They're, they're going to hang on to this thing, but they realize we've got to get rid of it, and we're going to get rid of it by sending a trespass offering. Now, I find that very interesting. You recall in our study of the book of Leviticus, when you study those first seven chapters, that there is the priestly duties that are prescribed there and, and given to us in the sacrifices that they were to perform. And so when God set up the tabernacle there in the wilderness that would then later come into the promised land, it was a way for the people to come to the Lord, to approach the Lord. And so they were to come with different sacrifices and offerings. And so there was the burnt offering and the peace offering that we see there. And that was a free will offering that the people would give. It was offering a, a sacrifice of devotion to the Lord. The burnt offering is the animal who is completely consumed. Again, it symbolizes how you and I are to give our whole lives to the Lord, all of our hearts to the Lord, because we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice before the Lord, as Hebrew or Romans chapter 12 declares to you and to me. And so those sacrifices has meaning to us. And those sacrifices, as they did th those, there was the sin offering or the sin sacrifice and then the trespass offering as well. And what the children of Israel in their trespass offering, what they would do if they sinned or trespassed against the Lord, they would bring that animal as prescribed there in the book of Leviticus, and then the worshiper would lay his hands on that animal, and then his sins, it symbolized, was transferred to that innocent animal that would then be sacrificed. And of course, it's a powerful picture of what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, did for you and for me. As his he, the one, the Lamb of God, who lived a perfect life, all of our sins were placed upon him. He bore our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the Lamb of God, Jesus, came and was sacrificed, as the book of Hebrews says, once and for all for our sins, as he bore our sins. He died in our place. He died in place of us, just as that animal in the Old Testament. And that was the message that the author of the book of Hebrews was getting across to those Christians there in the first century that were, they were looking at going back to Judaism and the old sacrifices and the old temple worship. It is the author of the book of Hebrews that's saying, listen, Jesus is better. He's superior. He offers a superior, you know, uh, sacrifice. He's superior than any, you know, created being or any religious person. He, he ministers in a superior priesthood, in a superior sanctuary. Jesus is the author of eternal life. And he came and died for your sins once and for all. All the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament could not do that. It made atonement, but it was a covering of your sins till Jesus Christ came and died once and for all for your sins. And that's why the priests in the Old Testament had to do sacrifices over and over again because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. 
all the sacrifices and the bulls and the goats was not enough to take away our sins. It was only Jesus Christ who has taken away our sins. And so it was to be a picture of the one that would come later, the Messiah, and die for them. So here is this trespass offering that the Philistines are going to offer. And so they are offering, of course, in a different way than the children of Israel. But what they're saying is that we have you know, done some kind of trespass against the God of Israel. And so we read in verse 4, and then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So I don't know how you make five golden tumors, but they did. And five golden rats, according to the five major cities and the Philistines. In verse 5, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. And why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, we touched on this a little bit last time, because when they brought the Ark of the Covenant out, there in chapter 4, you remember that the Philistines said, oh no, they brought the Ark of the Covenant out, and this is the God that struck the Egyptians. And I find that very interesting and intriguing, because you recall in Joshua chapter 2 that after 40 years of being in the wilderness, the children of Israel finally come into the promised land. And their first battle is Jericho. And Joshua sends the spies to Jericho, and they, and they meet um, Rahab, the harlot, who would hide those spies from those who were looking for them. And so it was Rahab that would say, we have heard the story of how your God struck the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea. And we know that, that your God is the true God. And, and it was Rahab that made it personal. She said, I know your God is true. And I know he's given you this land. And of course, Rahab would come to faith. And she's mentioned there in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So she surrendered her heart to the Lord, and she had heard about the mighty hand of God working against the Egyptians and parting the Red Sea. And those stories would be spread throughout all of those nations that surrounded the promised land, those nations and those Canaanites that dwelt in the land, but yet they refused to turn to the Lord and surrender their hearts to the Lord. And what intrigues me here is now the Philistines, some 400 years later, after the children of Israel have come out of Egypt, which means that those stories have passed from generation to generation to generation to generation. They knew what happened to Pharaoh. They knew that Pharaoh had hardened his heart. They knew that, that Egypt was, was defeated by the Lord in, in those plagues and that the Egyptian chariots were drowned there in the Red Sea. But what did they do about it? They actually hardened their hearts as well. And they did not surrender their hearts to the Lord. And what the Lord has done to show himself to these nations and to the, even the Philistines and the stories that were passed from generation to generation. Now, you can go back to, you know, our nation is not even 250 years old and we know that there's the, those who came along in, in the colonies and, and all of that that were established before we became a nation. And you can talk to our young people and Many of our high school kids and junior high kids, they know very little history of how our nation was started. Here the Philistines, 
They're very aware of the stories that have been passed from generation to generation. And yet their hearts are hardened. They saw the hand of God coming against them in the last seven months that they had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Lord was chastening them, coming against them, that they might turn to him. But they refused to do that. It's a terrible, terrible place to be and harden your heart towards the Lord. We do know people, all of us, that I believe that they've heard the story of Jesus dying for our sins. They've heard the story of Jesus rising from the grave. But yet they've hardened their heart against the Lord. They don't want to turn to Him. And it reminds me a lot of what Jesus said there in John chapter 3, that that men love the darkness rather than the light, so they reject the light. Because they love their evil deeds. They want to continue in doing what they're doing and worshiping what they're worshiping the idols of the world and the pleasures of the world. But I want to bring it home a little bit closer to you and to me tonight. It's a terrible place to be if any of us harden our hearts towards the Lord in any area of our lives. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord is ministering to you in some area of your life, bringing correction or desiring for you to, to, to you know, hear His instructions or Maybe he's dealing with you in some situation. Whatever it might mean, don't harden your heart to the Lord. And maybe it's very hard for you at the stage that you're in to hear the Lord say, forgive that person. Or I want you to give yourself to them or go and speak to them and, and whatever it might be. But we need to be ones that are always soft before the Lord our hearts and teachable and yield it to the Lord. And here they hardened their hearts as well as the children of Israel, their hearts were hardened. And so they, they said, we've got to get rid of this, this ark. And so what they're going to do is put it on a cart according to verse 7. They said, therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the carts and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, the Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It has happened to us by chance. So they say, let's take two milk cows, never been yoked, and we will take their calves, keep them at home. And if the cows go into Israel towards Beth Shemesh, then we know that they're being supernaturally led. But if they return, and that would be their natural instinct, is those milk cows would be turned around and go back home, go back to the barn, go back to their calves. And the Philistines are saying, if that's what ha- is happening, or does, if that is what happens, then we know that everything that has happened over the last seven months has just happened by chance. I think deep down inside, they know that it wasn't by chance that their cities got struck by tumors and a plague every time they moved the Ark of the Covenant. But yet they, they are saying, we want to make sure and we're going to do this and if the cows come back, then everything happened by chance. Isn't it interesting in Romans chapter 1 that when Paul's writing to the Christians that are in Rome, he's talking to them about the depravity of man. And he also speaks about how man deep down inside knows that there's a God because of the testimony of creation all around us. 
as you look at the, the complexity and diversity of, of the world, and as you look at the, the stars, the heavens, just as David would write, that the heavens declare the glory of God, that I think deep down inside, most people believe that there is a God, but yet so many people believe that things happen by chance. And unfortunately, that's what's being taught to our children. Unfortunately, that's what's being taught more and more in the church by pastors and ministry leaders and Bible teachers. And I think it's very unfortunate. Most of you know the story. I've I've told you before, but I'm going to tell you again. I remember when I was a college student at CSU, and I was in a science field, and I started out actually in geology. And in geology, of course, you have to learn all the geologic errors and, and, and classes and, and the millions of years old that those rock formations are. And I changed my major over to forestry, but you heard a lot of evolution and how everything evolved. And, and it was ingrained in you just about every single lesson that you had, whether you're talking about silver culture or forest ecology or, or whatever it might be, dendrochronology, all those classes, there was heavy in evolution how things evolved and millions of years old and everything else. And I remember being a student, especially there was one summer where we had to take two months of summer class up at Pingree Park, which was on the south side of Rocky Mountain National Park, and we'd walk around, and it was a great time. We'd be up, you know, doing snow field measurements and measuring streams, and, you know, we get to take the electric things in and shock the fish, you know, and they come floating up and measure them. That was, that was the funnest part of all, <laughs> you know. And it was a great time, but I remember, you know, I got to know some guys, and, uh, and they were Christians, and, and we'd sit there, and we're just at awe at everything. And then we'd be taught evolution, and, you know, we kind of have our little huddle and sitting there going, you know, after a while, how can this stuff evolve? The complexity and the diversity and how it's wonderfully all connected together. And as you begin to take ecology and how everything's linked together, and you see it's a wonderful, incredible design. That there's no way that this evolved. That it happened by chance? I don't think so. And that's what Paul is declaring there in, in, in chapter 1 of Romans, that that his creation declares, or creation declares that there is a God. And I think a lot of people deep down inside know that there's a God, but they don't want to submit to him, or they don't want to admit it. And, oh, everything happened by chance. And I think it's sad when I hear pastors more and more that are given into progressive evolution or, or theistic evolution, and God kind of got it started and everything evolved. And and I'll make it very clear, I'm a firm believer in the creation story and six days of creation. And if you want to know good science that backs it up, we got stuff in the bookstore, get on answers in Genesis, we don't have time to go into it. But God makes it very clear in Genesis chapter 1 that evening and morning was the first day, evening and morning was the second day, evening and morning was the third day. And so there are those who come along and say, well, that day, yom, in the Hebrew can be an extended period of time. And it can. It can in the Hebrew. The day of the Lord, such as what we're discussing about and will in the book of Daniel. The day of the Lord is a period of time. It's not one day. 
It starts with the tribulation period. It goes all the way through the tribulation period and actually extends into the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. But you see, whenever in the Old Testament, consistently it, it is this way, whenever you have that word day, that is with morning and night, or evening and morning, and day and night, it is always a 24-hour period. Every single case. So Genesis chapter 1, evening and morning, first day. Evening and morning, second day. And whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it speaks of the 24-hour period. And what seals it for me is when the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai and God gave them the Ten Commandments and he said, the seventh day shall be holy. You shall work six days and then the seventh day you shall rest just as I worked six days in creation and rested on the seventh. That settles it for me. Our God is a powerful, awesome God that spoke and the heavens were created. And here's the thing, the point I'm getting to. That it didn't happen by chance. It happened by a a creator who created this universe and this world. And I want you to understand that you didn't happen by chance either. And I want our children to understand back there and your children to understand that God wonderfully made them. And he created them. And he knows them. And he knew them and us before the foundations of the world and has a purpose and a plan for them. That they're not a product of just chances through evolutionary processes. And that's what I want them to understand very clearly. And if you're here today and you think, well, you know what, I happened by chance. That's what my parents told me. I was an accident or whatever. You didn't happen by chance. God knew you before you were even born. He knew your name. And he loves you and he has saved you. If you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, then he brought you here tonight. You're not here by chance. Or maybe you might be listening to this on the radio later on. And if you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, the Lord says, surrender to me. I created you. I love you. I died for you. And I have a wonderful plan for you. And that's the wonderful message that I love about the Bible. You know, God is the one on the throne, and he's in control. One of the things that it really frustrates me is when I hear, again, Bible teachers and, and um, you know, so-called scholars and stuff that say, well, Jesus was crucified because of unfortunate circumstances or he was the victim of injustice and all of this. No, it wasn't that we know that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would write about the Messiah was going to come and writing about how the Messiah was going to suffer and that he was going to die. You should look at Isaiah 52 and 53. And you see all these prophecies, over 300, concerning the birth and the life and the ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus was born, we know that familiar story of Luke chapter 2, don't we? And many Christians are going to be reading that story on Christmas Eve in many churches that, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And Caesar Augustus, the, the emperor of Rome at that time, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, he makes this decree that everyone is to go back to their, their homeland, to their, their place uh, where their lineage is from. 
and register for these new taxes. And of course, it was Joseph that was from the house and lineage of David. And we're going to see here in a few chapters, David was from Bethlehem. So they had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born. But you see, Caesar Augustus, he wasn't really in control, was he? He was just a puppet in the hand of God. And God put that decree into his mind. So he made that decree so he can get Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem so his son could be born in the place. And at the time, that he wanted him to be born. God was in control. And Jesus went to that cross. He went. He knew the hour that he would be delivered up because in the gospel accounts, you see that he told the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to be resurrected again. And so Jesus, all throughout the gospels, you hear him say, you know, when he's up in the Galilee region, my hour has not come when they're trying to make him Messiah. He said to Mary, his first miracle there, the wedding feast at Canaan, when Mary said, you know, can you help us? We're out of wine. And, and Jesus said to her, what's that to me? My hour hasn't come yet. So he talks about his hour hasn't come, his hour hasn't come, his hour hasn't come, until when you really begin to look at John's gospel and examine it, that in that last week, then in that last final few hours before the cross, he says, now the hour has come for you to be glorified, Father, for me to be delivered up. And Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I freely give my life and I will deliver, you know, allow myself to be delivered and I will lift myself up. I want to be resurrected. So it wasn't because of unfortunate circumstances. And as we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's a time that is ordained that he will come back. It's not going to happen by chance or dependent upon us. So here we see that they're saying, well, maybe by chance these these things happened, but God was working, trying to draw them to himself. And maybe, maybe tonight, if there's anyone that's here, that you haven't surrendered your heart to Jesus, you're not here by chance. Don't harden your heart. Don't reject his offer of salvation and forgiveness of sin, his love expressed to you, and his hand of mercy handed out to you. But he loves you, he created you, he desires to save you. Because Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, for all of us. So verse 11, so what they did, or actually in verse 9, then the men did so, and they took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest of the gold rats and the images of their tumors. And then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So what these cows did is they put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. Now, you recall from the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 15, that God never intended for the Ark to be carried on a cart, that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. Now, here is the Philistines. They don't have the Word of God, so they don't know any better. But keep this in mind Later on, when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to see that David is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Kerjath-Jerim up to Jerusalem. He's going to conquer Jerusalem. He's going to desire eventually to build a temple. God will say to David, David, you are not going to build the temple. Your hands are bloodied, so it's going to be your son, a man of peace that's going to build the temple. But David did things to help prepare 
for when his son would come along and build the temple. He was getting the materials ready. And what he did in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem from Kerjath Jerim. And what did he do? He put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And as we read that chapter, we're going to see that there, there was disastrous uh, consequences that happened because David put the Ark on a cart. One of his men ended up dying. And David at first was angry at the Lord because of it, but then it was David that had to repent because he realized that he was not to do it the world's way. The world is the Philistines putting the ark on the cart. They don't know any different. But you, David, with knowledge comes responsibility, and you should have known that that ark of the covenant was not to be put on a cart and be taken to Jerusalem, that it was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, according to Numbers chapter 4. And that's what David would do as he would do it right the second time. And I think it's an important lesson for us as we read this, that, you know what, with knowledge comes responsibility. And so you and I, we have the Word of God. And as we have the Word of God to walk in His ways and to be obedient and not to turn to the world and do it the world's way, and even as the church, as the church, we need to be careful that we don't try to bring the world into the church. And that can be a real trap. That can be a real problem. We can start doing things the world's way or try to be worldly or emphasis of how worldly can we be and still be a Christian. Rather than, Lord, we just simply want to know you and your ways because you know, we know that your ways are right and your ways are good. So here they put it on a cart. They're going to, and these these cows, they make a beeline right to Israel. They don't go to the left or to the right. And so they head towards Beth Shemesh. And so in verse 13, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there, and a large stone was there. And they split the wood of the carts and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. I believe what we're seeing here is they, they're, they're working in their fields. It's harvest time. They look up, and here's those, those you know, cows coming with the ark of the covenant. They rejoice. Um, the Levites take the Ark of the Covenant down like they're supposed to. They sacrifice the, the cows uh, as a burnt offering they would give to the Lord. Again, the burnt offering, according to Leviticus chapter 1, was an a offering of devotion. I think what we're seeing here is that the people are beginning to turn back to the Lord. And so what we're going to see here, that time is going to take place where they're going to forsake the Lord in the beginning <coughs> to now go from those dark days of the judges to where we're going to see that they're going to repent and turn to the Lord. And so in verse um, 16, so the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. So the lords of the Philistines watching those cows go to Bath Shemesh. They're traveling about 10 miles, 15 miles. Cows just go straight. And they see, yep, that's exactly the Lord's had his hand in this, the God of Israel, and they turn back and go to the Philistine territory, back to their own gods, back to their own ways. And as I read verse 16, I can't help but think, what a missed opportunity. What a missed opportunity. They return back to 
their cities to their false gods. You know, it is sad when we see that God is dealing with people and convicting them. And Maybe you witness to somebody and they're kind of searching and they're being touched and God's speaking to them. But all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go back to the old hangouts, to the old ways, go back to the worldly pleasures or the idols of my life or whatever it may be. It's a missed opportunity. And that's why we need to continue to pray for those that we minister to. That, Lord, you touch them and continue to just go after them. Continue to draw them to yourself. But again, as we talk about this, I pray that we wouldn't miss out on opportunity for us to draw closer to the Lord. Miss opportunities to have our devotions in the morning because oh, I'm just going to sleep in. Or it's not important. And, and listen, it isn't that God's going to love you more. Or it isn't that, you know, you're going to lose your salvation or any of those things, but it's a missed opportunity to just draw closer to the Lord and to grow in Him. And all of us have opportunities to do that, every single one of us. But what can happen so oftentimes is the things of the world and the busyness of the world, and all of us get busy. I understand that. I get busy. But one of my prayers that I've learned to pray in the morning is, Lord, I don't want to miss out on any opportunities that you might have for me today. And how you're leading me and how you're speaking to me, how I can minister to others. Lord, I don't want to be so busy and so distracted and, and whatever it might be that I'm not sensitive to your leading, to your prompting, to your working in my life. But I want to be sensitive to you and I believe that there are opportunities daily that the Lord desires to give to you and to me to be used of Him, to minister to others, perhaps to, to draw closer to Him, and that we wouldn't miss out on those opportunities. These guys did. They go back to their old cities and their old gods and, and their old ways. And so verse 17, These are the golden tumors which the Philistines return as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ascalon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. Those are the five major cities. And the golden rats, according to the numbers of all the cities of the Philistines, belong to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh. And then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, verse 19, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord has struck the people with a great slaughter. So the ark comes to Kerjef, um, or the ark is there, excuse me, in Beth Shemesh. The people rejoice um, and, and they sacrifice, but then something happens, verse 19. All of a sudden, the men of the city look into the ark of the covenant. And like I said, it was a box. And you recall what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It was the two tablets of stones that had the Ten Commandments. So they take the mercy seat off and look in it, and all of a sudden they're struck. This judgment comes. And it says a great slaughter of, of, of 50,000 and 70 men. Now, some of the translations are struck 70 men of the people and 50 ox of a man. So some scholars believe that it wasn't actually 50,000, that they doubt very much if there was even 50,000 men there at Beth Shemesh. But it was probably, you know, uh, more of 70 men and 50 oxen of a man is where some of the translations come in. But be that as it may, it was still devastating. 
But you know what it tells us? They took the mercy seat off and they looked at the law. And if any of us look at the law and remove the mercy and the grace of our Lord, that mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on, if we try to bypass that and we just look to the law or anybody does, it's going to bring death. And that is the truth of the New Testament that Paul very painstakingly and very carefully gets across, especially in his epistles of Galatians and Romans, that every single one of us have broken the law. The purpose of the law given to the children of Israel is to show us that we are sinners, that we've broken the law. It's this schoolmaster to point us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that we need a Savior because the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have sinned. And that's why we need to turn to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he bore our sins upon himself, died in place of us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he died in place of us that as we come in faith, then we are imputed his righteousness, we are forgiven of sin. So Paul says that no one is justified by any deeds of the law or by works. So he makes that very clear, not only in Galatians, but also in, in Romans, as well as in Ephesians. And you can go through the, the, those epistles, and it's very clear that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that's what brings salvation. Now, there are many people that are banking on that I am good enough to make it to heaven. And I know that this offends people. As you talk to them, as I talk to them, and we give the truth of the gospel is, is that you can be a good person and still be lost because none of us are good enough. And it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. And people struggle with that sometimes. They say, what do you mean? I mean, I'm a good person and I've been a good husband and I belong to the church and I've even given, I do community service. I've raised my kids in the right way. I'm a good person. I should make it to heaven. But the thing is, none of us are good enough. And we know that, those of us that are in this room. But a lot of people don't. And they are looking to their own righteousness to get into heaven and stand before God. But the thing is, we're all guilty. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that's why we need to tell people that all of us are guilty. Every single one of us. That none of us are good enough, and that's why we need to turn to Jesus, our only hope, our only salvation. He is the one that provided forgiveness, became the sacrifice so you and I can have eternal life. And so we need to not look to the law or our own righteousness. We need to look to the mercy of God, the grace of God provided by Jesus on Calvary's cross. So as we finish tonight, verse 20, And then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up for us, from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. 
And so chapter 7 we read, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought into the house of Abin-Adad on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the ark goes to Kirjath-Jerim, comes to the house of Abin-Adad and uh, Eleazar, we don't know if they were priests, but the indication is that they probably were priests. Um, and they show great respect for the ark. And so the ark is there in their home for 20 years. And their house is blessed. The ark of the covenant symbolizing the presence of God. And I'll tell you the truth on this, that if you honor the Lord, respect the Lord in your life, and there is the presence of the Lord in your home, day after day, week after week, year after year, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. When people come into your home and they sense the presence of God and the peace of God and the honoring God in your house, there is a blessing that goes with it. And so the people lament it. And this is where we're going to stop tonight. We'll pick it up here in two weeks at chapter 7. But they lament it. And they had a lot to lament, didn't they, over it? Because they've been defeated and they have died under Philistine domination they were not right with God, but what we're going to see as we read on next time is they're going to turn to the Lord, and we're going to talk about what true repentance and revival really is all about. And so, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this lesson, and what a powerful short chapter, but so much to look at. And, Lord, I thank you that you are the one that draws us to yourself in ministering to us and in, in blessing us and, in, in Lord, speaking to our hearts. And, Lord, my prayer is for this Christmas and as we go into the new year that none of us would harden our hearts towards you in any area of our lives that when we receive your word and hear instruction and correction and and Lord when we see your promises given to us and your principles that we would have a desire to apply them into our lives